every follower of Christ is called to take initiative. So why do we risk so little for the sake of God's mission? Initiative is terrifying. We exist in packs wanting to identify with a a certain group. And when you take initiative, you by necessity step away from the group. And we live in a world that's so polarized and so disincentivizes people from taking initiative and taking a stand and being clear and convictional that it's terrifying to do that. Charles Smith on fear, faith, and the fatherhood of God this week on the Missions Podcast in one minute. But first, a word from ABWE's president, Paul Davis. ABWE missionaries are coming beside the lost and the hurting around the world. And through the Global Gospel Fund, they're pulling people from the darkness and training them as leaders. They're planting churches, and they're even beginning their own missions movements. You may already support one ABWE missionary. Would you consider a gift to the Global Gospel Fund to support all 1,000 of our missionaries? Thank you for that. Become a partner today at abwe.org slash global gospel fund. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Mobilization for ABWE International, joined again, as always, by the one, the only, Scott W. Dunford, West Coast Mobilizer for ABWE and Lead Church Planter for Redeemer Church in Fremont, California. And Scott, it's good to hear your voice today at the time that we're recording this. uh, Some heavy, serious things happening in our nation and uh, across uh, the globe, of course. Uh, but uh, I'm just glad, honestly, to hear your voice. How are you doing? You know, I can't I can't complain. I mean, it's a lot worse for a lot of people in a lot of places, but mm. certainly there's a heaviness to all that's going on. And, uh, you know, we just pray for our pray for our nation. We pray for healing, we pray for justice. And um, yeah, I mean, and that's one thing unique about the mission podcast I feel like is that it always is bringing my mind, you know, once a week back to the fact that there's a larger world than just what I'm dealing with here in my mm-hmm. little corner of California and, and you in your corner of Pennsylvania. And, um, it, it really, I mean, even just the podcast we did on the Uyghurs and realizing like, okay, there's injustice all over the world, you know, and there's suffering and pain and, and the gospel has answers for those things. And, uh, it just forces us to, to think about the big picture and what God's doing around the world. And I think even our interview today will help us to lift up our eyes out of our circumstances and keep them on Christ. So I, I love what you're saying that you're, you're teeing me up here. I mean, can I just make an appeal to our listeners? Uh, if you're anything like me, you know, you're probably spending more time listening to news and current events now than before. And I'll admit, I, I'm probably spending less time listening to you know, theology podcasts or sermon feeds and things like that over the last few months. But can we just make an appeal and say, don't tune out from this and keep following the missions podcast, because you're right, the American news cycle, for those of our listeners in the US and in North America, our news cycle is not the globe's news cycle, right? There are millions, billions of unreached people in the world. And God is doing something not just in our midst, and it's something that we have to engage with and talk about, but he's doing something Uh, across the globe. But let me shift gears just a little bit on a positive note. So I walked into my office here this morning, we are back and we are operating from our headquarters at ABWE. 
uh, we are officially open for business. And of course, you know, some things have collected on my desk over the last few days. I just took a staycation this past weekend too. So that does it. And lo and behold, I find this beautiful for the church box with Charles Spurgeon's face on it on my desk waiting for me. I open it up. I've got some, you can hear the shrink wrap, some awesome, beautiful socks which mm. I know is important. Um, <laughs> my, the socks I'm wearing have holes in them actually right now. So my wife, Hannah, will thank you. Um, and I've got an awesome new book here from Todd Chipman. Anyway, we, we love our friends at For the Church. We love our friends at Midwestern Seminary. Mm. And we bring back to the show today our mutual friend, the one and only uh, Charles Smith, uh, Vice President at Midwestern. Uh, Charles, you do so many things over there. And your, your title is probably longer and more intricate than what I just gave. I don't want to butcher it. Can you remind our listeners of everything that you're responsible for overseeing at Midwestern? Man, thanks for having me on the podcast. And, uh, and you're welcome for the box. I'm glad you got it. And I'm glad you got socks, most importantly, just uh, meeting some practical needs <laughs> for you and most especially for your wife. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, you got it right. Uh, it's not too exciting. So I, I serve as the vice president for institutional relations here at the seminary. And I also teach uh, in the field of leadership. And so I've been here eight years, moved here from Louisville, uh, where I was serving at Southern Seminary. And uh, we, we have three divisions at the school. We have an academic division uh, over which a provost um, sits. And then we have a administrative division where you have things like grounds and budgets and uh finance and things like that. And then you have institutional relations. And we oversee anything from student life to admissions, to fundraising, to events and marketing and um, all those sorts of things. So it's, it's fun. We love what we get to do. And you get to send boxes to people, which is going right. to be the highlight of it. That's right. He's some, basically some the Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some people. We were talking offline about how I didn't get one, but that's okay. I was going to... This time. This yeah, time. Yeah, I've, I've gotten them before, so... Charles. We're glad for that. I, I thought when he was saying he saw a picture of Charles and he started with this S, I thought it was going to be Charles Smith. And then I said, this has gone too far. <laughs> we, we need to, we need to rein it back in, but Charles Spurgeon, that, that makes sense. Oh, good we, yeah. We did that one time and people kept returning the boxes. So, <laughs> well, I would keep mine, but for the church does more than just mailboxes uh, as awesome as that is. You guys really uh, hats off to you as an institution for building something that adds value to the whole church and not just those that are directly connected to the seminary. I think that's an awesome model for ministries, for nonprofits, mm -hmm. for a seminary to give back to the broader body of Christ. And one of the neat things is several weeks ago, uh, Y'all ran an article on For the Church titled Fear, Faith, and the Father of, uh, Fatherhood of God. And I know this mm -hmm. is near and dear to your heart. Obviously, you're working on your dissertation right now having to do with leadership. But I couldn't think of anything more apropos to talk about with everything going on from the virus and the pandemic to riots, economic shutdown, racial tensions in the country, everything happening to talk about fear, to talk about risk, uh, to talk about fatherlessness uh -huh. or the fatherhood of God and what we need in our culture. Yeah. And so uh, there's so much to dive into. But first, tell us what you've been studying um, for your dissertation and tell us where this article came out of. What prompted mm. this article? Because, man, everything you're doing on leadership right now is being field tested. Mm, mm. Well, I appreciate that that introduction, this word of that article, and and what we do it for the church. Man, the the article and the heart behind uh, seeing fear and the intersection uh, between fear and leadership is uh, really the culmination of a, a lifetime of observation and 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 a season of introspection in my own life and and questioning my own fear and own lack of faithlessness. 
uh, or lack of faithfulness, I should say, in, in certain areas. And um, man, I've I've grew up, and in, in fact, I, I believe in this article or another one. I, I mentioned that I grew up in a house that really esteemed leadership. I mean, there are leadership books everywhere. Uh, my dad was a, a business leader, a city councilman, and kind of did a lot of those things reluctantly. Like he he would tell you, he's not a naturally wired, charismatic leader type person. Uh, but he just felt called to serve his city and uh, build a business and do things like that. And by God's grace, he was able to do it. But it but it came at a great cost to him in some ways. It wasn't easy. And, and so he was constantly engaging fear and engaging what it felt like to lead beyond perhaps your gifts or, or what you felt naturally equipped to do. And so I've seen things like that growing up. I was um, one of the things that was most transformative to me was just the church where uh, whether it was as a worship leader in the Sunday school class, I would go to church every Sunday and just see literally thousands of people who were in a really large church come assemble, ascend to certain truths about God and his call and, and our call to be on mission with him. And then really just abdicate that responsibility six days out of the week. Like we, we go and we sing and we pretend to be excited. Mm. And in fact, yeah. a lot of times we are. Uh, but certainly in the the South, there was just a lot of lip service and it it made me, you, you have this where I'm learning leadership in one hand and also observing a community. And honestly, just by way of admission, observing my own life and my own fallenness and going, man, what is keeping us from engaging? What is, I mean, if you look at the stats on um, missional engagement in North America, uh, you know, like 90% of people say they have a personal, churchgoers would say they have a personal obligation to share their faith. And yet almost as little as 10% do. I mean, it's like the exact opposite wow. of yeah. what they say. And so you have this massive disconnect. And, and obviously that is so multifaceted. It's laziness, it's pride, it's sin, it's, it's, you know, it's all sorts of things. But I think one of the things that's happening is that we're fearful. And I think when we look to scripture, I mean, we see from Genesis to Revelation, um, mankind struggling to believe God is who he says he is, whether you're in the Garden of Eden on throughout the New Testament, you see this mm -hmm. constant call to follow God on mission. There's there's a movement to scripture. And consistently, you see man being reminded by God not to fear or to reorient his fear to the right things, to, to God, not yeah. to man, and uh, those sorts of things. And so I just started uh, thinking about those things growing up. And then to give credit to where credit is due, Russell Moore wrote a book uh, who's been really influential to me, a book called Tempted and Tried. And in Tempted and Tried, he walks through the baptism and temptation of Christ, Matthew 3 and 4. And he argues that um, Jesus is obviously coming into the, the full awareness of his deity uh, in his baptism. God is, is saying, this is my son and who I'm well pleased. And then that event is connected with, his identity is connected with the wilderness account. And he goes out and he's, we all know the story, he's tempted in three unique ways, a uh, temptation of provision and a temptation of protection. And then this, this temptation of how will he be exalted? Will it be through the cross or through bowing the knee to Satan? And Russell Moore argues that what's happening there is there's in the sense that Hebrews talks about Jesus is the author and forerunner of our faith. We're seeing what it looks like uh, to live a life of faith in some typical ways that Satan 
tempts us um, and, and how we're tempted to respond in that. And, and obviously we see that Jesus stands where Adam falls. Jesus believes where Adam uh, doubted. And, and he believes what he's believing there is that God is a good father that provides. God is a good father that protects. God is a good father that is with us, even in the wilderness. And so as I read that book, even though that book was about temptation, I was reading it alongside leadership books. And for me, uh, I just immediately wanted to apply this to leadership and go, this is the reason we're not engaging mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is again, it's multifaceted, but this is a, it has got to be, if we read scripture carefully and we define leadership carefully, fear has got to be one of the leading reasons that we don't lead or that we lead in really distorted ways, or we don't engage in the mission or we engage in it in really distorted ways is we are really curious about whether or not God is who he says he is. Is mm-hmm. he? our father or not? Will he provide or will he not? Will he protect and and will he not? And obviously those things are in shades now. Uh, We don't see the full protection of God on this side of heaven. We don't see the full um, even manifest presence of God. We have the Holy Spirit, but we will one day see in full what we, we now see in part. So all those dynamics are there. And so this article I wrote that you, you kindly referenced is, is really, me talking about this tension of living in a world where we both fascinate, we're fascinated by leadership and we're fearful of leadership. We, we listen to podcasts about leadership and we cower at the call to lead. And uh, I think it's a real problem for the church. And so I'm, I'm trying to address it in some ways. Well, we're in a unique moment culturally and in the fact that everyone is recognizing the need for leadership and you do address that, that there's multiple ways that we lead. And so even if you're listening to this and you're on a mission team or, you know, you're you're at the sink washing dishes and you're listening in on what's going on and you look at yourself and say, I'm not a leader. Well, you address that in your article and you, you really mm-hmm. say that part of our Christian identity is to be a leader. Can you unpack that? What does it mean that as Christians even if we're not necessarily the president of the United States or the pastor of a local church, or even the head of our mission team, that we are still called to lead in some way. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, uh, for, for good reason, there's a lot of confusion around leadership, especially in the church. And I think that's because when you look at scripture, a lot of us just throw the word leadership around. But I think when you look in scripture, leadership is referred to in at least four ways. And I, I think the first is is leadership as a spiritual gift. Paul talks about that in Romans 12, those that lead, lead with zeal. And and if you look at the the language there, it's it's mostly about administration and management. Those are that are great at organizing. And that, that stands to reason logically, right? Because Paul's sure. not saying those that lead come be an elder. He's he's you know, not in that particular right. case, the elder of that church, but he's he's saying, hey, serve the body with the gifts God has given you of administration. Scripture also talks about leadership and what husbands are called to do in their families. Husbands are called to, to be the head of their home in the way that Christ is the head of the church. And Scripture talks about leadership as what pastors do. And that's typically what we confuse leadership with. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a way Scripture talks about leadership. But I would argue it's not the, uh, it may be the most explicit way, but it's not the most fundamental way that scripture speaks to leadership. And so this fourth category that I talk about in this, this article is what I call leadership as mission or missional leadership. Hmm. And all I mean by that is when, when, 
when, when we look at scripture and ask the question, what is God up to? What is God up to? And obviously that changes. There's, there's old covenants and new covenants and those sorts of things. But guys like Christopher Wright uh, would argue, and, and we can disagree on whether we like uh, Christopher Wright, but missiolo- missiologists would argue God is on mission. Uh, God is on mission. And, and some of them would say, and I think this is a great definition of the mission of God, that God is on mission to make himself known as Lord over all creation. So let's say we agree that God is doing that from cover to cover, mm-hmm. Old Testament, New Testament. He's on this mission. Well, we ought to ask as his image bearers, what does that mean for the mission of God's people? What does that mission mean for the mission of the church? And I think when you look at scripture and we see that God is progressively revealing himself to us, he's progressively stepping towards us. He's progressively taking initiative uh, for the good of others, uh, ultimately for our eternal good, but also just for for common grace to his his um, those that are made into his image. I think those that are made in his image, you and I are called to to follow in kind. I think when you look at Matthew 22, the great commandment is this call to love God and love our neighbors. And part of that horizontal horizontal love is to be a missional leader, to take, and I define missional leadership as taking initiative for the glory of God and the good of others. So it's just stepping towards need, stepping towards risk. And why do we do that? We do it for God's glory, as we're called to do everything in Matthew 22, and the good of our neighbors. And I think if you define leadership that way, you and I could agree that all Christians, apart from gender and spiritual gift and age, like we're all called to do that mm. as moms and bankers and pastors. And and it's from that foundation, we're all called to do that. And yet only some have the gift of spiritual leadership. Only some are called to be elders. Only some are called to, to be husbands. But all of us are called to to be missional leaders, to join God on mission and take initiative for the glory of God and the good of others. But the problem is, if you take a, think about the nature of initiative, Scott, initiative is terrifying. I mean, we've, we've known yeah. for 150 <laughs> years in the field of psychology, um, and Scripture affirms this, but in just in secular psychologists would tell us that we exist in packs. We exist in groups. Every, everything you and I do, the podcasts we listen to, the books we read, is, is really part and parcel with wanting to identify with a, a certain group. And when you take initiative, you, you, by necessity, step away from the group. And, and we live in a world that's so polarized and so disincentivizes people from taking initiative and taking a stand and being clear and convictional that it's terrifying to do that, to, to step away. And so what happens is what a lot of people don't realize is when they take their, that step, maybe take a step like you have done to move to California and plant a church. I can imagine that there were there were moments where there was a lump in your throat. There were queasy. Oh, you mean uh, today? Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Yeah, today. And I would say beneath uh, the lump in your throat and the queasy hands, there's fear. And and beneath the fear is this, this deeply spiritual insecurity. And I'm not personalizing this to you, Scott, but I think it's a universal. Well, let's pick on Scott. Yeah, it's a universal experience that we're wondering, will God, just like Jesus in the wilderness, we're wondering those same questions and we're being asked actively those same questions. Is God who he says he is? Will he provide? Will he give you everything you need to accomplish his will? And the answer obviously is yes. 
But the struggle day to day, moment by moment, is is to believe that, to embrace, right. um, to 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 address our fear with faith. And what what are we putting our faith in? In uh, the fatherhood of God, that God is yeah. a good father that'll give us everything we need. So, I think it's well, a big issue. I want to talk more about this idea of risk um, after we break. But before we go into the break, just unpack slightly um, this. This you're talking about fear. And I think we can all resonate with fear, but you specifically are connecting fear to, for instance, the temptation of Jesus. Okay. Is God going to provide for me? Is God good? And talk us through that because for myself, I'm, I'm thinking of conversations I've had with my pastor in the last three months um, about engaging in a certain ministry in our city. And my wife and I are having transparent conversations about risk and timing and schedules and, and it, you know, is it always like, well, you're fearful, you're doubting God or sometimes like, well, no, I'm, I'm legitimately just counting up the cost of like, you know, if I do this, then I have to sacrifice this. And there's a risk of this. There's a, there's a very practical side to it too. Right. And Jesus says to count the cost. So, you know, is it always that, that unbelief level of fear or how do we, how do we categorize, how do we view some of those other, you know, mitigating, you know, kind of variable factors that may or may not uh, lead you to to step out in faith uh, and risk and do something in terms of ministry? That's a great question. No, faith or excuse me, fear plays a really, really important and crucial role. Uh, I mean, God has given us uh, the, the emotion of fear. Uh, the Psalms talk about fear. Uh, and, and and in fact, one of the reasons you, you need faith is because of the active um, existence of fear in our lives. And so oftentimes fear is telling us that, that there's something, uh, worthwhile at stake. There's things that matter, you know, that you need to provide for your family and, you know, those sorts of things. And so it's not to suggest fear is bad. It's just to suggest that fear, we want to acknowledge that, that that is there. We want to, uh, we want to point to scripture and go, what does this look like typically in scripture? What does Jesus do when he's encountering this? What does he tell the disciples in Matthew 28, 18? I mean, oftentimes when we, when we recite the great commission, uh, it's about going and teaching and baptizing, but we often forget that all of that's anchored in do not fear. I've overcome the world and I'm going to go with you. Yeah. And I, to me, it's like the reason Christ is saying, I mean, you think about that moment, Christ, this is the risen Lord who still has holes in his wrist that knows way more than his disciples do what the cost of discipleship is. And yet he's asking them to unlock the door and go out into the context that just crucified him. And so he knows, and they know precisely what he's being asked to do. And that's why he immediately addresses fear. So it's not that fear is wrong. Jesus knows our frame. He knows that our, we're dust. And he, he knows that fear is part of the deal, but it's not an ultimate part of the deal. And it's to be overcome with faith in who Jesus is for us, who God is for us, what he's done for us, and what, what he will ongoingly be for us on mission. And I think we see that in Matthew 28, 18, but it's just a... It's like we don't we we gloss over it and don't talk about just these natural parts of fear. And I think we just need to address it. I think it loses a lot of its power when you just go, man, I am fearful. Uh, what does that look like? And you're right. A lot of this can sound like the prosperity gospel if you're not careful that, oh, you know, you shouldn't fear. God will always provide. Well, obviously, Matthew 28, 18 shows us that sometimes he does in really unorthodox ways. I mean, through, through the cross. 
And so it will be with us. And so it, it's, it's, you got to get back down to what is provision? What is protection? What does God care for us on this side of the cross? And, and that's crucial. Hmm. That's helpful. Well, let's dive more into risk and everything that comes with it after this quick break. Hi, I'm Scott Dunford, and I would like to share with you about a new nonprofit ministry established to help churches, Christian schools, and other ministries protect children and prevent abuse. Rich Hamar from Church Law and Tax states that the number one reason that drives churches to court is child sexual abuse. I can't think of anything more devastating to these lives, their families, and our witness before a watching world than sexual abuse that takes place in ministry. The traumatic impact often leaves the vulnerable not wanting anything to do with God or his people. Furthermore, as ministry leaders, our efforts toward evangelism, discipleship, and spiritual formation are not only neutralized, but shattered. Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention was formed last year to help ministry leaders understand the complexities of child protection and abuse prevention. They are establishing standards and an accreditation program that will help verify that appropriate measures are in place at your church or ministry. Learn more about them and their good work at abuseprevention.org. Find a helpful and free assessment tool to help you see how you measure up in this area. Go to abuseprevention.org and click on the link for this resource assessment. Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention. Pray for them and follow along for this accreditation program coming soon. Brooks Buser, president of Radius International. I am here with Mark Dever, senior pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist and president of Nine Marks. When you go to a culture that's a different language than yours, you're ending up in a kind of majority language that's been reached. And there are other peoples still more hidden, and it's those people who are often almost entirely unreached. And they take more cross-cultural effort is there a way we can better train people to have more realistic expectations of what life is like in the kind of two steps away from my culture and be able to sustain family life with its normal difficulties there so that there can be a long years and even decades long witness in that culture. And it seems like Radius is set up to provide that training. Radius is about reaching unreached people groups. Go to radiusinternational.org, radiusinternational.org. And again, we're back with Charles Smith, Vice President of Institutional Relations for Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Did I get that right? Institutional Relations? I was getting confused. Okay, because at ABWE, we have a Vice President for I think it's strategic relations or partnerships or anyway, he's a vice president and we are really grateful for his time talking about his article, fear, faith and the fatherhood of God and what missional leadership looks like right now. Charles, when I was reading your article, what resonated most with me is your section on simulated leadership. And I'm just going to read that section for our listeners. Mm -hmm. We'll link to it in the show notes. You write this in response to our fear. We often retreat to the safety, comfort and familiarity of the stance which by the way, you're reading this during lockdown, during quarantine. And and I'm like already convicted because here we are, you know, locked inside our safe suburban house, you know, disinfecting everything. And, you know, then I pick up scripture and it's talking about death to self. And I'm like, there's already a cognitive dissonance there, right? Just to be clear, your your disinfecting has nothing to do with COVID. It has everything to do with Hannah. uh, Right. Yes. She's, (laughs) she's very, she's very dirty. She's, yes. uh, I'm going to be very clean. She's very clean. Oh, oh, that, that, right. I'm not disinfecting after her. Um, Right. Right. Okay. Sorry. So anyway, it's a good thing she doesn't usually 
listen and I'm just going to move on. Um, <laughs> and so here we go. Anyway, you write, no, let me backtrack. In response to our fear, we often retreat to the safety, comfort, and familiarity of the stands. In doing so, many forego leadership altogether or worse, engage in what author Andy Crouch calls simulated risk. In his book, Strong and Weak, Crouch helps us understand what happens when we succumb to our fear of leadership. In response to our fear, our temptation is not total disengagement, but powerful and rewarding simulations of engagement. The real temptation for most of us is not complete apathy, but activities that simulate meaningful action and meaningful risk without actually asking much of us or transforming much in us. Crouch has put his finger on a real and pervasive problem. Many of us are too scared to lead, but too proud to appear disengaged. Stuck in the middle, we simulate leadership. All, almost done here. This is good. This helps explain why many of us are tempted to tweet instead of engaging in meaningful dialogue with those with whom we disagree. It explains why we boast about living, quote, on mission, unquote, without actually talking to our neighbors. Ultimately, we fear what might happen if we do. Mm. All right. So what is stimulated leadership and why is it so dangerous for Christians engaged in missions, especially? Mm. I, I think, I mean, you, you just hit the nail on the head reading that, but, but in particular referencing our current moment. And I, and I think we live in a, uh, a social media age. We live in what I, I call nerf leadership sometimes, which is, it is so easy uh, to appear engaged, to to simulate engagement. I mean, you think about the whole phenomenon of call to duty. I mean, it's it's. And again, I'm not knocking video games. I'm sure they're great, uh, and I mean that. I, I don't say that with any sense of maybe a little mockery. But um, but I'm not anti video game guy. But at the same time, we live in a world that is is surrounded by simulation. Uh, we, we, we simulate marriage on apps. We simulate, hmm. uh, intimacy in pornography. We simulate valor in video games. We still simulate leadership on Twitter. Uh, we, we, we are so confused about who we are engaging, who we're responsible for. I mean, think about Twitter. Uh, you mentioned earlier me getting off Twitter. And one of the convictions behind that is again, and, and I, I love Twitter, not knocking it. And I think there's a role for it. But at the same time, I think it confuses millions of people um, or millions of people are confused at who they're responsible to to shepherd and speak to. And uh, there's a sense in which we need to steward the influence God has given us. And by God's grace, all, all three of us here, we all, everyone has influence. But we live in a world that incentivizes us um, to simulate meaningful engagement. I think when you look in Scripture— uh, that is already a temptation without it being um, encouraged through apps and culture. And so mm -hmm. there's just this perfect coalescence where um, mm -hmm. you and I can jump on Twitter and we can raise Cain and feel like we just did something. And I'm not saying there's no value to that. Right, I'm right. just saying it's a really convenient excuse to hide. And it's a really sophisticated way to simulate that we've risked something. And what's happening, I think what's happening beneath all of this in our hearts is, um, and I think, by the way, this is, this is a secular and a Christian problem. I think there's only a Christian solution, but I think it's, this is pervasive and worldwide, yeah. which is we're, we're fundamentally insecure. And, and that word, uh, obviously we see that in scripture, but that, that is a concept and word came from Maslow, who you remember learning in school, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And, and he, or he remembers said the foundation of our needs, the need, 
that we cannot get beyond until it is met is security and safety. And there's a physical aspect to that, but there's also a, a psychological, emotional aspect of that. And so this, this question of who am I and protecting that when we think we have an answer to it. And so what we do is because we don't want uh, our neighbors to think we're, we're fundamentalist Christians in a progressive city, well, well, we don't invite them to our Sunday school. We don't cross the street when we know they're hurting and share the hope of the gospel with them. Why? Because we don't want to be ridiculed. First, first Peter says, we don't want to be thought strange. Mm. Man, I think that is so powerful. And I think the dynamics there are fear, but it starts with I'm insecure. And I would argue, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of ways to become secure. We can be secure in our money and relationships and success, but all of those things um, are only as secure as our money is, or our stock market is, or our reputation is. And so for the Christian, when we look to scripture, our security is to be found in Christ. We have this anchor in the storm, like all these images uh, you know, we, we like to mock people like Hillsong and Bethel because they're constantly singing about um, storms and waves and, and valleys and all these things. And, and again, there, there are things there that we can uh, we can disagree with. <laughs> but one of the reasons those things are powerful is because they're true. They're tr- like there, there's truth to a lot of yeah. that, that we as script- we as Christians do walk through valleys. We do encounter storms. And the, the power of those images is not the storm, but the person that calms them. And so as we think about leading, remember back to taking initiative, we're stepping away from safety. We're stepping away from the status quo. We're stepping away from security by taking initiative. Well, how do we do that? Where do we find the security to do that? And it's not in our, um, it's not in our success. It's not in our approval with man. It's not in our reputation or in money. It's in our identity that literally eternally cannot be taken from us. And if we get that right, we will, we not only will walk across the street to talk to our neighbor, we'll fly across the globe to an unreached people group. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, I think we first have to acknowledge, man, what's going on in our hearts? What, why do I have a lump in my throat when I'm wanting to share the gospel with somebody? Like what's going on there? And I think that fear back to what you mentioned, what is the role of fear? You mentioned that a minute ago, Alex, mm-hmm. I think it's telling us something. I think it's a, it's a little alarm that God has given us that, Hey, this matters. And I may be questioning is God a good father? Is God going to provide? Is he going to protect? Is he going to care for me? He's going to be with me there. And the answer to that, certainly eternally, and we get shadows of that on this side of heaven is yes. It's a, it's a resounding yes. Uh, but we got to start acknowledging some of those, those, those dynamics or what we invariably do is we walk to the threshold. We walk to the ledge of meaningful leadership. We feel the sweaty palms and the lump in our, our throats and we just back off well, and we don't engage. Yeah. Let me just ask a quick uh, follow-up question to that too. And I know Scott wants to get in. How do you prevent yourself from assessing the legitimacy of a leader's action based off of the level of risk? So we can all acknowledge that there's such a thing as hashtag activism, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that it's easy to look virtuous while doing nothing. Um, But how do you separate that from you saying, well, there can be some legitimate good done by some of those things. So how do you, um, in that view, in other words, how do you assess something? It's, it's yeah. just because something is risky, it doesn't make it 
righteous. And just because something's not as risky doesn't make it completely fake. Does that question make any sense? It, it, you oh, know, a thousand percent. No, oh, yeah. I think okay. That, I think that's, that's right a on great point. question. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really, really good question. Um, and I think with everything, we have to go back to scripture and go, what has God called us to do? I mean, I think that that has to be the first principle. What has God called us to do? Okay. God, God is on mission. He's called us to be on mission. Oftentimes, though in Scripture we see that we're to be still and know that He's Lord, oftentimes that means that, I mean, look at Hebrews 11. There, there's a hall of faith there. Um, remember, I'm calling us to, to engage our fear with faith. And if you read through that, um, it's in faith they acted. In faith they did something. In faith they were faithful, they, they, they obeyed, they, they responded. And so I think when you look in Scripture and go, okay, what are we called to do? We're, we're called to believe and have faith, but often our faith has feet. It, it moves. It moves with God on mission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think you start there. And so you can just simply go, okay, if I'm not doing that, then obviously I'm not risking and venturing much. But then to your point, risk can also become uh, – pornographic in a sense that we're, we're, there's just such yeah. a lust for risk and for right. um, oversharing and over tweet, you know, all those sorts of things. And so ultimately I think even that though, it comes back to scripture and wisdom and, and what has God called us to do? And so some of this cannot help, but be personalized to someone. And so hmm. I think when you're doing leadership, um, when you're doing leadership development, for example, one of the things you ought to be asking, uh, Paul talks about in Romans that we should think soberly about ourselves. And what Paul is not saying, as people typically think when they read that, is, hey, be humble. What he's saying is that that's, that's one implication, but the broader implication is be honest about your gifts mm-hmm. um, and be honest about your weakness, like rightly appraise who God has made you to be. And I think part of that when it comes to leadership is noting that for some people, risk and like really taking initiative for the glory of God and the good of others looks like complete apathy to someone else. Mm. And then to others Mm. that have a personality that's just really driven and they're going to say the, I mean, think about the disciples and and the difference between Peter and some of the other disciples, maybe Matthew, Matthew's really timid. Peter so we need to tell Peter to shut up a lot more and we need to goad Matthew, the Matthews own a lot more. Does that make sense? And so I think that it has to be does. personalized to the person and go, man, are, are you, are you depending on the spirit? Are you John 15 abiding in Christ? And what does that look like for Alex? And that, I think it looks different than what it looks like for Scott. Well, sometimes lead, sometimes risk can just simply be an addiction to adrenaline. And just an example of even my calling into, into missions, I, I struggled. Actually, when, when I felt like God was calling me into missions, I felt like I went through a depression. And, um, and I, I had a good friend that helped me kind of walk through my feelings. And part of, the, part of what I was depressed about was a loss of preaching because I was going to, into a setting which I wouldn't be preaching in front of people. And I was, I was afraid I was going to miss that. But when I started examining my heart motives, it wasn't that I was going to miss the proclamation of the word. It was that I was going to miss the adrenaline that comes through from standing in front of a a larger group of people and preaching in that format. Well, okay. What sounded like a really spiritual thing, like, oh man, I, I feel like I'm called to preach and I won't be able to do that in my new setting was really just an exposure of, of, uh, uh, 
an ad- adrenaline addiction that I had to deal with. And sometimes le- sometimes leaders do risky things, not because it's what God's calling them to do, but because they're addicted to the dr- adrenaline or the attention or the feeling. This is where we have to be so careful, I think, especially uh, as we engage with organizations and larger church bodies. As Are we, are we doing what we're doing uh, because the other leaders in our group is going to approve of us? Um, mm. Or are we doing what we're doing because God is going to approve of us? So if I'm mm-hmm. if I'm doing it so my neighbor approves of me, that's an idol. If I do it so uh, the president of my favorite seminary approves of me, that's a problem. Um, if I'm doing it because God approves of me, then that is the right motivation. And I, mm. I love the way you bring this leadership uh, focus into this idea of the fatherhood of God, because we can all imagine, especially those of us who grew up in good homes, uh, with loving fathers, how you just wanted your dad's approval as a kid. And, mm-hmm. and how, as you get older, you, you want your friend's approval more. So, uh, sure. and, and we, and then you get older again, and now I'm in my forties and I really, uh, I mu- much more value my dad's opinion than I do mm-hmm. just the opinions of my buddies. So mm-hmm. how does a proper understanding of the fatherhood of God empower us and equip us to be able to put aside some of those other things and, and really focus on what he's calling us to do in mission. Man, that's, that's so good. And I appreciate you sharing that. I, I, one of the, um, one of the things I did in research for my dissertation was look at, um, basically the personalities and, um, yeah, personalities of adopted children. And and even how their personalities changed after being adopted when they were just foster children and the comparative levels of confidence uh, and those sorts of things. And and this would all be really intuitive. Right. I think we would intuitively go if somebody said they're bringing a foster child to our house, we would probably anticipate some anxiety, maybe some shyness, maybe um, maybe some lack of discipline and things like that. And that's not fair to them. Uh, but it's just the truth. And oftentimes those things are indications of what we know to be true, which is they've come from, uh, they don't have parents, their, their dad, either, uh, because of death or divorce or, or whatever the case is, they don't have a father figure in the home. And what we believe as Christians, Christians is, uh, moms and dads play a unique role, but I think fathers have, I mean, it's just been proven time and time and time again, that the father's voice is so powerful and it, it, it instills um, unique things in their children. And one of those things is just confidence um, and a sense of identity. Uh, you know, you, when you look in scripture, you look throughout the Old Testament and this concept of blessing, um, this awareness of who you are, and it's rooted in this familial concept and the same is true for us as, as people of God. Paul says in the book of Ephesians throughout the, the New Testament that, that we, God has broken down the wall of hostility. There's now a new man that's made in Jesus. And, and we, by faith, have become uh, sons of God and brothers to Jesus. He's our, he's our elder brother, right? And so one of the concepts of, from that, one of, the, one of the benefits of that, is just having a new identity. And I think a lot of us, certainly as new Christians or as cultural Christians, we kind of understand that concept that God's our father. We sing that in Sunday school class. But I don't believe we realize how this comprehensively changes not only who we are, but how we live and lead. 
And so just like the adopted kids or the foster children that are shy and skittish and nervous and uh, their voice quivers and they, they, you know, and maybe stutter, things like that. I think there's a parallel with baby Christians and people that are struggling with doubt that they don't lead or they lead in distorted and malformed ways. And so ironically, people that are often the most insecure leaders, for example, because they don't know who they are and because they're having to lean on their success and their reputation for who they are, they actually lead by fear. Because they're afraid, they scare other people. Um, they do things like that. And it's all that those are the adult versions of the insecurity, the stuttering, the, the, um, the things that you see in foster children. I think those things are played out, uh, not only in adults, but in adults that are Christians mm-hmm. that, that don't understand who God is. And I think part of the work of leadership development, oftentimes in the church, when we think about leadership development, we think about competency and vision and team building and conflict resolution. All those things matter and are good and have their place. But I I think if we don't get this matter of who are we, and for the Christian, whose are we, uh, we do all those things in vain uh, because Mm -hmm. ultimately the thing breaks down because... um, yeah, for all those reasons I've already outlined. But yeah, so the fatherhood of God is a big, big thing, not only in shaping our identity, but also helping explain what that identity means for us here and eternally. Charles, why why you got to convict me? Why you got to convict me? See? This, See? This, that, I, I, you didn't warn me first. <laughs> man i a- anything i write about is funny people people always criticize me of like why did you subtweet that person and first of all <laughs> I, had to, I, I had to look at what that means and then secondly i'm like <laughs> almost anything i tweet that feels like a hot take or jesus juke it's because i'm i'm thinking about myself mm. invariably i'm thinking about myself and i'm going oh, i'm an idiot and i think about it you know a lesson and th- that's the case in this article and I read, um, you guys should read a book called When People Are Big and God is Small by Ed Welch. Yeah. And uh, he just talks about the fear of man. And so often, and if fear of man really has a hold of your life, and I struggle with that big time. And I, th- I think we will all struggle with that until the day uh, Jesus gets us. I, it. it it distorts your life in so many ways, ways that you're aware of, ways you're not aware. It's just so powerful. And what you realize is, man, there is there is um, an idol on the throne of God, and it's the approval of other people. And so part of part of me writing on these things is is me just trying to work out in my own life how do I take that person off the throne. Uh, and how do I put God back in his rightful place? And I think as you do that day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, leadership trial by leadership trial, you slowly conform into the image of God where where we are looking from bread from God, not from man, not from success, not from numbers, but who has God said he will be for me? And I'm convinced, here's what I'm convinced. I think the world has a lot to say about leadership and I love it. You won't find a bigger fan of leadership books and things like that. It's not all great, but a lot of it's really, really helpful. But those people are incapable. They're incapable of doing that. They're incapable of removing an idol of acceptance and replacing it with anything. 
they're incapable of fueling leadership to the levels that God has called us. I mean, if we, we want people to go to the ends of the earth, if we want people to leave their church, if we want people to leave, as Scott has mentioned, being in a pulpit and their adrenaline rush. I mean, these deep things that, that we love, it's got to be replaced with a greater love, a greater security, uh, a greater mission. And Christians are the only one that the only ones that have an answer to that. So as we're wrapping as we're, as we're wrapping up here, Charles, what's your encouragement for those who are paralyzed with fear and and they, they sense maybe God's calling them to do something, but but they're struggling with what to do next? Man, I, I would do th- two things. One, I would um, I mean, the first step is just acknowledging that I'm fearful. I, th- I think that is a huge thing. And, and I would say that we live within a context. Evangelicals are really not good with our emotions. And I think you can overdo that. But uh, God gave us emotions for a reason. And they're, um, I had a friend recently say they're not meant to be the headlights. They don't drive us. They don't inform who we are, but they are little alarms. And so you, you, it's wonderful that you have noticed the alarm and go, man, I'm really fearful in this space. And so I would start questioning your fear is the first thing. And as you're questioning your fear, uh, I would just get in the current of the scriptures and God's grace and mm-hmm. trust that God's going to work in that that space. And so uh, question my fear, do that in community, maybe in your church, process that with people, and then have that illumined by the Holy Spirit. And, and oftentimes I find that we do one or the other, but not in tandem. We, we geek out on Enneagram or something and just go navel gazing forever into an endless black hole about our mm-hmm. fear. Mm-hmm. Or we pretend like we're not afraid. We stuff our emotions in, in a you know, proverbial basement and just recite scripture over and over and over and over and over. And I think both of those are a distorted view of what God's called us to. And so I think if you can question your fear and do that in community, in gospel community, people who love you and will shoot straight with you and do that as you're bringing that to scripture, you're testing that, you're sorting that in community. I think God's going to do what he does. Um, and so that would be my encouragement. Well, thank you so much, Charles. It's always good to be able to talk to you and especially to process these things about leadership. Uh, it's such an important topic and appreciate the light you're bringing to it. And one resource that you've just started, which is uh, already been a huge blessing to me, but I want our listeners to know about it is, is the, uh, the leadership project podcast, which has been out now for a while. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And can you also give us, if someone wants to connect with you, learn out more about the seminary, uh, connect with you more about for the church, how can they do that? Yeah. Yeah. So the leadership project is uh, us trying to work out what it looks like day by day to take initiative for the glory of God and the good of others in a thousand different spaces. And so we've done uh, 17 or 18 of those podcasts so far. We're, we're having a blast doing that. So you can find that on just about any platform. It's called the Leadership Project Podcast. Uh, and then you can find me at Midwestern Seminary, which is mbts.edu. And uh, so more importantly than me, you can find our programs and application and ways to contact me. And if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out. Charles, thank you so much for your time here today. And uh, we encourage everybody to check that out. Check out For the Church as well, ftc.co, ftc.co. And even though you guys, I guess, are gathering virtually this fall, um, excited to be a, uh, an honorary member of the Extended Midwest family and uh, excited for everything that's happening in Kansas City. So God bless you in your ministry and your studies and writing, Charles. Thank you, brother. Grateful for you, man. Thank you. 
To get more content, go to missionspodcast.com or check out abwe.org slash podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. To ask a question or suggest a topic, email alex at missionspodcast.com, and we'll see you next time on the Missions Podcast.